Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Okay, welcome to part two of my interview with Ed Oxford. Um, again, I wanted to mention, I apologize, there are a couple of moments where there are some noises that are happening. Uh, I couldn't cut them out without losing Ed's words, so we're just going to have to emotionally prepare for that and just get past it. But, this is a great interview, I can't wait for you to hear this. Check out part two. You mentioned some statistics about suicide in the LGBTQ plus community and then the stats, how they change when you enter religion or non-affirming theology into the equation. Can you, would you mind unpacking some of that? There are some studies that have been done and I uh, learned about this through Dr. Ken Fong, um, who was uh, a seminary professor at uh, Fuller Seminary and also a pastor of an American Baptist church that I was going to at the time. Pretty much most people on the planet know that LGBT people have somewhat of a high suicide rate. But if that LGBT person comes from a Christian home, that suicide rate doesn't go down, doesn't even stay the same, but it goes up by nine times. So that is an incredibly high suicide rate. And we have scripture, we have God's word, we have Jesus on our side and the Holy Spirit. So you would think the suicide rate would go down because we are presenting truth from scripture. But what if we are presenting something that isn't quite what God intended? Then we would see the results that we're seeing, which is the bad fruit. Then we would expect to see exactly what we are seeing, which is this high suicide rate. If we're presenting something that's not quite from God's heart and God's word. That in its very essence should at least start people on their path of studying and learning and listening. I've noticed people are like, well, they're committing suicide because they're messed up in the brain. They're obviously messed up in the brain because they're wanting the same gender. And so they go down this whole path of garbage psychology, stuff that can't even be proven. And they're they're spewing out stuff, trying to make sense of something that they don't understand rather than trying to understand something that they don't understand. It's just turned into a big mess because they have to create a story to support this false narrative in order to maintain their narrative. I've always told people, if you have to make something up in order to continue with your narrative, then maybe you need to reconsider your narrative. That seems like pretty basic. Being a gay man and having done all the research and studies you've done, why do you believe people are gay? Where's this coming from? What makes a person gay? Is that what you're asking? Or what do you think's in God's mindset for all of this? Because those are two completely different answers. Can you answer both? <laughs> We don't have enough psychology, enough science, enough information to know what causes a person to be gay. They've looked for a gay gene. They've looked for, there's some other scientific information when they're studying this, when they're looking in the parts that make up the DNA. I think I've, I've seen some studies that are trying to look down that path. You know, nature or nurture, were you born this way or did your parents raise you in a bad way that made you gay or something like that? That's what was taught in the 70s, 80s. And it's even taught today by people who haven't recognized that those studies have been debunked. It really saddens me that somebody can go read a book that's been debunked and believe it because it fits with their narrative and makes them feel good about themselves. That teaching alone, which is false, has done a lot of damage to parents who thought that they were guilty of causing this kid to become gay. And that had absolutely nothing at all to do with it. If we only look at information that 
gives confirmation bias to what we're already thinking, then we're never going to learn. We're never going to grow. We're never going to get all of the information to make a proper decision on these types of things. At the end of the day, I don't know what we can point to that causes a person to become gay versus straight. They've talked about the chemicals in a mother when she's pregnant and certain stress that happened at wartime produces more gay kids. They've noticed because of certain mother stress levels. Um, in Vietnam, they said during the, the Vietnam War, the mothers that were pregnant, they, there's a larger percentage of gay kids that came out of that. And they think that there might've been moms that because of their stress levels and the hormones changed and different things happened. I've seen studies that have said when there are a series of boys born in a family, there's more likely to be a gay one in there because we can't have too big of a population or something like that. So it's just the way of nature kind of working things out so that we don't have an over population. I've heard that before. I am satisfied not knowing what makes us gay. I'm okay not knowing that because I don't need to know that. All I know is that God made me the way that I am. And however scientifically he chose to create me the way that he did isn't important to me. The same thing I could say is true of the way that I believe in, in, in Genesis. I believe God made the world over billions of years the way that we see it today. If you study Hebrew and anyone who knows and understands Hebrew, it's not a literal 24-hour period. The way it's written, it's more of a poetic form and it's just kind of explaining ideas. I think it's interesting that the order of creation mentioned in Genesis mirrors what geologists show us and what biologists show us as far as the creation and the fossil record. I think that that's interesting how they parallel and they agree. Could God have created the world in six literal days? Absolutely. Could he have created it in six literal seconds? Absolutely. Could he create it in six billion years or more? Absolutely. He is God. He can do what he wants. And I don't have a hard time not knowing the details behind that. It doesn't matter to me. It's not as important because I can see the world in front of me and I can see gay people around me. And it doesn't matter how they came to be, just that we are here. Now, as far as why did God choose to have gay people in the world or, or whatever, I think we're here to teach the church how to love. And so far, I think the church is failing that test. Are we teaching them how to love by existing and then basically exposing how they're responding to us? Or because of the way gay people are wired, they're demonstrating something the church doesn't get? What do you mean by that? In my opinion, I think that God allows or has created gay people in this world in order to teach the church how to love people that they might disagree with. You can disagree with someone and still love them. And I don't see good examples of that in massive ways across the church today. In fact, I see horrible examples of love. So far, we're failing this test of, as a church of learning how to love in spite of our differences. We're failing it royally. I would even take it a step further and say, what I see amongst my gay brothers and sisters, I think, is what has the DNA of bringing on a revival to the church. We currently have a generation of, I would say, younger millennials and Gen Zs that haven't even been raised in a church, whereas the older generations have been raised in a church. And most of the people who aren't going to the church today that I talk to are like, they don't like gay people and my friends are gay, so why would I want to go to your church? A huge portion that I talk to in this category that don't go to church in the Gen Z and younger millennials don't go largely because of the LGBT issue. They're not LGBT necessarily. The LGBT people don't want to go either because I don't want to be treated like that. And their straight friends don't want to go because why would I want to go where you're going to other my friend and put my friend down? It doesn't make sense. So we've seen this whole generation leave the church, but we've seen this generation because they've left the church, they have a fresh perspective. The last reformation we had was 500 years ago. We're overdue. And at one point we were talking about just through my own process, 
navigating some of the social and religious and public aspects of coming out as a gay man. And you mentioned straight privilege and that being a factor in the terrain that I had to navigate. And I loved what you had to share there. Would you mind unpacking a bit? What is straight privilege? What does that mean? Why does that matter? A lot of us have been exposed to the term white privilege over the past few years. And I know the first time I was exposed to that, I was defensive. It's like, sure, I'm white, but that doesn't mean I'm privileged. It doesn't mean I think I'm better than other people. It doesn't mean that, you know, I get so many wonderful things that you don't get, but I didn't understand because I was ignorant. And so I had to be educated on that and listen and learn and realize that I do have privilege that I might not even realize as a white male in today's society. And in the past several years, I've had a privilege that I haven't had, that other people have not been able to, to have when they walk into the same spaces that I've walked into. And the same thing is true, I think, among straight people. And then I started talking to some of my straight friends and, you know, you might have some privilege you might not realize they got defensive as well, because it just felt like, but I love gay people. How can you say that? And I, that's not how I feel. And so I think part of it is to understand what we mean by privilege. To understand the basics of privilege means something that I inherently have that gives me a heads up in society. It doesn't mean that I don't work hard to get what I get. It doesn't mean I didn't work hard and put this house together that I live in to get where it is. It does. No, I worked very hard, but I had a certain privilege to be able to get there that I'm not even aware of. And we've seen all of the examples that they've given to help people understand privilege and how you start from way back. If you're running a race and you're starting 100 feet back and it's a 200 foot race, you might not be able to catch up to that person and surpass them. So you're going to finish the finish line probably behind. So we've seen a lot of those examples given. And I heard it explained by a, a, an amazing, beautiful transgender friend of mine. She teaches her kids that when you have privilege, you need to think of it like an umbrella that you have. So if you have an umbrella, you need to help hold that umbrella over other people who don't have an umbrella so that you can shelter them from that rain. So it's when we have something and we can use it to help others along in their space, in their place. People who have straight privilege, obviously, probably for the most part, don't realize that they have straight privilege. I can go and talk to someone about this LGBT theology that I'm studying. And I've had people who will say, well, if you're gay, of course you're biased. You're going to twist everything to go down your direction. But yet Kathy can open her mouth as a straight, cisgender, white woman and share the exact same words. And they can't say that because she's not gay. She's not lesbian. Some of these people might be more likely to listen to her than to listen to me. That privilege that she has, she needs to think of as an umbrella and use that privilege to say, people might listen to me that will not listen to Ed. I need to acknowledge that and deal with that and strategically use that for God's kingdom. Kathy and I have walked into some spaces that male privilege gets more than female privilege. So we've walked into some spaces where she had to stand behind me to be respected by the people we were talking to. We were told that she needs to wear a dress, stand behind me, and let me talk first because some of these conservative people that we were seeing might not respect her as much. So we needed to take that into consideration. So I had white male privilege, but my gayness I can hide. You can't hide blackness. You can't hide femaleness as easily, but you can hide gayness. So I can walk in as a seemingly straight, white, cisgender man and be able to step into some shoes that she couldn't. I took my umbrella and I sheltered it over Kathy in that particular sense. 
so that she could be invited into this particular space and we could have that conversation. A lot of straight people, even allies, sometimes don't realize that they have that straight privilege and they can walk into a space and they're going to be seen differently as someone who is gay. And I think that's important to acknowledge and to realize. I think that straight people need to be careful before they put these expectations on gay people that can be put on them, but it's a burden that might not carry the same weight on a gay person. Nobody should come out if they're not ready to. I always advise kids who are still living at home, if you cannot support yourself financially and you have a fear that maybe you could get kicked out, you need to maybe hold on and not come out yet and consider that it might not be a good idea yet. If you have family dynamics that you know better than anyone else and you think it's not a good space, it's not going to be a safe space if you were to come out, you need to take that into consideration. When straight allies come into this conversation and they have expectations on someone else, someone else's coming out story. And I realize straight people come out as affirming. I realize that's a tough burden to carry. I realize people lose family. My pastor lost his family. He's a straight cisgender white man and he lost relationship with his family because he became an ally. So I realize there's a cost to share for straight people, but I also realize that cost is going to be cut differently and partitioned differently when it comes to gay people. Can you give us an example of a way that a straight person might have an expectation for a gay person where they're just unaware of their straight privilege and how that might be a, an unfair expectation or burden for the gay person? I think when a straight person says, you need to be your authentic self and you need to share this with your family, even if they reject you, you're lying in the meantime. When a person is, is putting their expectations on who you need to come out to and when you need to come out to and how you need to come out to, you know, when I had my separate Christian circle from my LGBT circle, and my LGBT circle would say, you need to come out to all these people in your family and your mom and dad and everybody. And them not knowing the dynamics of my family, it felt very offensive because you don't know my situation might be different than yours. But sometimes I see a straight person having that expectation and not realizing it might not be something that person can handle yet. It might not be good for that person. It might create more harm than good. So we also have to, when we're learning about this particular arena, we have to reflect back on Nazi Germany. If you are hiding Jewish people in your house and the Nazis come and knock on your door and they say, do you have any Jews in your house right now? You don't say yes, right? Because sure, you're lying when you say, no, there are no Jews in my house. But that lie, as we study in philosophy class, is a smaller evil than the truth which would cause them to be put in concentration camps and killed. That's a no-brainer that we use in philosophy class and explain all the time. If you have to lie to save those people hiding in your house, that is the thing that you should consider doing. Number one, I think if anyone's asking you if you're gay or not, that's an invasion of privacy. And so to straight people, I'd like to say, you shouldn't be asking that. I don't ask you what you did with your wife last night in bed. So why are you asking me if I'm gay or straight? That just seems like you're stepping over a line that because of your straight privilege, you feel like you're allowed to ask me these types of questions. But because of your straight privilege, I'm not allowed to reciprocate with a similar identical type of question with you. And so a lot of times I think straight people don't realize that. So I think that's an example that I could give you that I've experienced in my own life when straight people demand to know about me and my story, but if I reciprocate with a similar question, they get angry. They don't realize that they're doing the same thing to me. We should allow people to come out in their own time the way they want to come out and how they want to come out because this world is not a safe place. If we're protecting people in our house that we're hiding from Nazis or we're protecting people or ourselves from certain relationships and ways that things can go, 
I think we need to take a lot of that into consideration and give it a deep thought. In specifically the theological slash Christian world, there are different views about what it means to be gay, what's acceptable, what God would approve of, what the Bible condones. Would you mind unpacking the ABCs of different views? Okay, sure, absolutely. Traditionally, in the past, I would say 20 to 25 years or so, we've used these terms to explain the way that we think about LGBT people. And so we would call them side A or side B. A side A person comes to the table and they say, I see these scriptures about LGBT people, but I don't think they're talking about how we view LGBT people. I don't think it's the same thing. And so I am affirming side A, I am affirming of LGBT relationships. I am affirming of same-sex marriage. I would be fine with a married gay man or gay woman to be the pastor of my church, to be in leadership at my church, to serve on various committees in my church. So that's what fully affirming means. It means there's no difference between gay or straight. So we don't differentiate that you have special privileges if you're straight, but you don't have those privileges if you're gay. Side B is someone who says, I see these scripture passages, and I don't think that God is okay with LGBT people being in a committed monogamous loving relationship. But I think if they stay celibate for the rest of their life, then I'm okay with that. So celibacy is the top goal of someone who is a side B Christian. Those are the major two perspectives that we've seen in the last 20 or 25 years in this conversation. And so I started started to think this might not describe every straight person or gay person's perspective on this because I see some other people and they're kind of like, no, I'm not really in that. So I'd see is what I call closeted. It's a person, basically the, the 90s Clinton administration, the military, don't ask, don't tell. Churches, don't ask, don't tell. Just don't talk about it. Don't ask. We're not going to ask you. You're not going to tell. We're it's sweeping it under the rug. So closeted. This is a closeted position. And so as long as these gay people stay closeted and they don't talk about it, if they're side A or B, it doesn't matter to me. As long as they stay closeted, me as a straight person, I'm fine with that. As a gay person, I'm not going to talk about the gay side of me with anybody. They're not going to ask me. I'm not going to give them permission to ask. I'm going to keep this part of me compartmentalized, closeted. But as we have all seen the past several decades, closets don't have much oxygen. They are dangerous and they don't produce fruit. So we can't really classify them as supporting scripture if we're looking at fruit being the goal of a union. Side D is what I call deciding. So it's someone who admits, I don't know if I'm side A or B or C or whatever. I do know I'm D. I'm deciding. I'm doing my homework. I'm researching. I'm reading books. I'm listening to stories of LGBT people. I'm going to podcasts and seeing what people have to say. I'm reading scripture. I'm learning. I'm in a posture of learning, and I'm open to listening to the Holy Spirit teach me until I do land on certain platform, whether it be A or B. Side E would be EXX, like an ex-spouse, ex-gay. This is a person who says, I think that your sexual orientation can change. So we still have people today who believe this, even though there's no evidence for it. But side X believes ex-gay is the way to go and that you can change your sexual orientation with enough prayer, enough concentration and focus on God and scripture. Obviously, they're not utilizing scripture in the accurate historical and cultural context that it's written. But at any rate, side X thinks that you can change your sexual orientation. And then side F, forget about this, F this, I don't want to have anything to do with God or church, I'm out of here, I was raised in the church, they hate me, I'm gay, I'm going to go live my gay life. This describes the largest percentage of LGBT people out there. However, it also describes some straight people who say, I don't want to be a part of the church because you don't like my gay friend. 
So I'm out of here too. So those are the sides or the positions that I came up with and realizing, you know, there are people that aren't yet represented just by A and B. And so I put together those letters to kind of describe where people may be. And so when I, when I present this to pastors or church leaders, a lot of them will admit, you know, well, I, I'm actually, I'm kind of inside D right now because I do want to learn. I do want to have a posture of listening and I do want more information and more data and access to more resources. But side D is never meant to be a permanent place to position yourself. It's meant to be temporary. And so I always explain to them, do not get too comfortable inside D. You need to do your research until you, until you do land. You mentioned at some point revival or like a reformation, God doing something in the church that we need, but maybe haven't necessarily like seen or haven't appreciated the way that it's coming. And you feel like gay people have a particular role to play in the church. Do you have any thoughts on that you'd care to embellish on? This isn't the first time the church has got something wrong and horribly wrong for that matter. You know, we saw slavery continue for 2000 years after Christ, practically. When we look at the history of the abolitionist movement, I think we can learn so much and see so many similarities with what we're experiencing today. Because during that period of time, we had Christians who could not become affirming of ending slavery because, and they were stuck in their keep slavery mode because they said the Bible has slavery mentioned in it. So if we give up on slavery, we might as well give up on the whole New Testament. The one pastor is actually quoted as saying that. And if you saw my book collection, I have a ton of books. So I have actual books that are written during the abolitionist movement by pastors who are trying to keep slavery. And so we see during that period of history that these people were, were looking at this and saying, I love my Bible so much that I have to keep slavery. My vote is to keep slavery because I love the Bible and scripture so much. When we look back at that from our perspective in the 21st century, we can say, you were pretty twisted, weren't you? But at the time, they thought that they were being more accurate to scripture. And I think a time's going to come when we look back at this period in history and we see people who, what we would classify as possibly homophobic or anti-gay, we're going to have a time in history when we're going to look back and say, why were you willing to twist scripture to such a narrative? How could you not look at the Bible as a whole, God's overall picture and overall plan? How could you not judge trees by their fruit? How could you not look at God's massive love? How could you not look at the historical context of these passages that you had a hang up over? How could you misinterpret them for so many decades? We didn't have massive suicides until the last few years since the word homosexual ended up in the Bible and not until 1946, as we all know. We can see some things going on when the first telescope was invented. 1607, Hans Lippershey in Germany invented this first telescope because he was an eyeglass maker and he learned how to put certain glass marbles in there and you could see long distances, which became an amazing tool to be used in war times if you wanted to know if this army is approaching or not. We need to get our people to safety. The following year, we, see, we can see where Galileo Galilei kind of adjusted this telescope to look up at the stars and to look up at the sky and the planets and the moon and different pieces of celestial objects out there. And a year after that, in 1609, Galileo discovered three moons orbiting Jupiter. And up until that time, the church taught and the church's beliefs had to be taught in the public schools and the educational institutions. But the church taught that basically the earth was at the center of the whole universe and the sun, the planets, the moon, the stars, everything rotates around the earth because the earth is in the middle. And in fact, they would use their clobber passages to convince the society that this is what's going on. When they said, and I can show you six clobber passages in the Old Testament that they would use, where it basically says the earth is still and it shall not be shaken, it shall not be moved. 
And it, there's several passages that talk about the earth as it's still, it's put in its position, it's anchored where it's at. And then it talks about the sun rises and the sun sets. So it says, okay, the, the verbs here are the sun that's doing the rising and the sun is doing the setting. So therefore it's the sun that's moving, not the earth. So they were convinced by their clobber passages that the earth was strongly positioned and everything was rotating around it. So Galileo says, wait a minute, guys, I'm looking in my telescope here and I kind of have you know, a different idea here. I think that actually we are going around the sun and I think these moons are going around their planets and these planets are going around the sun. So he started to kind of give us an idea of what our solar system looked like more clearly than previous generations. Although um, we've seen people have been observing the stars for years and years, he had more information and access to it because of the modern technology, the modern science of this new tool that was created so he could actually observe more. And so instead of the church saying, oh, really? Can I look in the telescope? Let me see what you're seeing so that we can talk about this. Instead, the church doubled down on him and said, you have to stop teaching this or you're going to lose your head, basically. So he retracted certain things, which he didn't lose his life, but he was in prison for the rest of his life because he even dared to say such a thing. Uh, the church did apologize to Galileo 350 years later. If we looked back at these at that particular time in history and someone's announcing, no, I think the earth is revolving around the sun, and they plop them in a carton, transport them to the local center of the town in order to execute them, and we see these old movies where people are cheering on, execute them, kill them. They hate God. They hate the Bible. If we were to kind of see that type of thing play out in front of us, the most godly thing to do would have been to say, wait, maybe the earth rotates this way, that way, the sun. We don't know. But it's not worth killing someone over. It's not worth jailing someone for the rest of their life. It's not worth these types of high costs and expenses. Can't we just love until we understand? And we have more information to understand LGBT people and how we become gay, et cetera, et cetera. Can't we just love in the meantime? And this is where I said earlier, I think the church is failing on its ability to love out of this. But when we look at history, when we see what's going on, when we see our perspective of scripture, and sometimes we misunderstand things and we get it really wrong, why can't we just love until we figure it out? I have another book. I have another piece of historical information from the 1700s. If you come to my house, you're going to see tons of really old books and papers and documents and things like that. But I have this page. I really like it. It's from the 1700s. I'm going to say the mid-1700s. And it was a written description and a diagram of the solar system and how they understood it at that time, which is how we understand it today. And any first grader can tell you what our solar system looks like, and they can probably name all the planets. But when we look at this, and I see it was safe to put that book out in the 1700s about how the solar system looked. 150 years earlier, somebody would have gone to jail for that book. What if 25, 50 years from now, science gives beyond a shadow of a doubt information to let us see and understand clearly to the point to where we realize God beautifully and wonderfully and purposefully made us this way. There is no way you can doubt this science because of X, Y, and Z. Churches all over are like, yeah, duh, the science is there. My question is, why couldn't you have loved these LGBT people before the science was there? Is our love for God great enough that we're willing to love people when we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle? Or must we get the pieces of the puzzle and pieces of the solar system before we cannot put someone in jail or crucify them or you know, execute them or whatever. Right now we're in that position before 
we have more science that we, every year that goes by, we have more science. So right now, we can't inconclusively identify a gay gene or a reason or et cetera. However, I think the time's gonna come. And I think we're gonna look back one day and we're gonna say, look at what we know now. And oh my goodness, did we ever mess these people up? But the beauty that can shine through, the revival that can exist is when we see people love on LGBT people and show God's love of all people who should be doing the best at this right now. It should be the church. It should be the church saying, I don't understand the science. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. I do understand God and I love God and I love this person and I'm going to love the tar out of them, even if I don't understand these details. But we've allowed people to create a narrative that is not biblical, that is not theologically sound, and that has created a huge amount of hatred and homophobia in a society that never should have happened because we as the church should have been leading this way. The church should have led the abolitionist movement. And if you do your research and study on that, the Quaker church did the most of all the churches, but churches were not known for the abolitionist movement. That's not really where it happened. And in fact, most churches were known for keeping slavery in place. We're in a similar situation today. The churches should be leading us out of this mess. The churches are the ones that got us into this mess, causing this mess, creating this mess even longer. And so I see that as understanding grows, the revival might come then, or it might just be this huge amount of love that people just realize, oh my goodness, I don't get it, but I'm going to love. So I see a lot of potential for a revival here and a revival that can be pure and fresh and clean for people who are not carrying decades of church baggage with them. For people who are listening to this, who are like, um... I do love gay people. That's why I have to tell them what the Bible clearly says. What do you say to those people? Because I think they mean it. They think that's love. Like I, for me to love you, I have to push yeah. against this deception you've accepted in your life. My question to them would be, if what you're saying is true, then it should produce life, but it's producing more death. It's causing suicidal ideation. It's causing huge amounts of depression. And if you don't know that, it's because you haven't done your homework and your research. But I can guarantee you from my position of really digging into this and interviewing a lot of people, those things that you're saying are not showing love. They are causing depression. A good tree produces good fruit. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, madam your tree is producing death. It's producing bad fruit. So you need to re-examine your tree, your soil, your fertilizer, your water, and everything. All right, Ed. So um, on my podcast, Confessions of a Reformer, is there a confession you have about you know the journey you're on, the field that you're working in, your industry, all the things? Is there a confession you would care to share in this confessional hour? God is bigger than I had ever realized. God created trans people. Don't, do we understand what that even means when we're looking at the Old Testament and we're looking at how the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and how God has opened up himself to a bigger group of us? Do we even know or realize? But I didn't realize how much I had been putting God in a box. And so my perspective of God is crazy bigger now. And so my appreciation for scripture, which was huge before, is even bigger now. So it's just, it's like amazing to just see this freshness. It's as if we all died and went to heaven and Jesus is now my Bible study leader, right? And so I get like more of an inside scoop on this stuff, which is what I had always wanted growing up, right? So it just feels like a different level of Bible study. Listen, Ed, I got to land this plane, but thank you so much for 
doing this interview with me, I'm curious, as far as like the work you're doing in the world, what are ways that people can get access to you teaching? Do you, are you still traveling and speaking? Um, I know you have a book coming out. You got a documentary coming out. Are there other things that people can plug in or connect to just if they wanted to hear more from your part of the world? The plan is to give people access to resources, to materials, to testimonials. Um, so what I, my dream is, and if I can make this happen, is to be able to create a website that will have um, access like YouTube video style so that if people say, you know, I don't understand transgender people, I just want to hear a couple of testimonials. They go on there, go to the section that talks about testimonials and they choose transgender, female to male, male to female. And they go there and they, they have, there's a three minute testimonial, a 15 minute one and an hour one. So they can do whatever they want to go as deep in the rabbit hole as they want to just listen and learn from people and their stories. Um, or if they want to hear a pastor uh, give it a talk on Romans 1 and kind of understand it kind of in depth. So to have those YouTube videos uh, curated and put together so that they can kind of go in there. If they're having a tough time as a parent with what do I say or not say to my kid who just came out to me, have a section for parents to go to. An LGBT kid who's trying to figure out how do I come out to my parents? There are sections there that they can go to. So just to kind of have resources. So this is the future goal. This would be post book and post movie. Um, as people have questions, they have a place to kind of go to. So I already bought the domain years ago, but um, when I get to the point, so it's beyond1946.com is uh, what I created several years ago in order to have the space for people to land and to listen and to learn and then connect it to other websites. Kathy has um, reviews of many of the books that she's read, uh, the, the non-affirming books to kind of give us an idea. She's done an amazing job on parsing those and seeing where um, certain things fall apart in the non-affirming argument. And so to have access to a lot of the different resources is kind of a, a goal or a dream, but that's down the road. So right now, in the meantime, I would encourage people to, to go to Kathy's website. Kathy Baldock has a website, uh, KenyanWalkerConnections.com, and you can go in and look at some of her talks, her videos, some of the books that she's reviewed. You can see some articles. Um, you can follow the transition of what we've done when we made the discovery in Yale all the way through to where we are now, as uh, we put articles in there over the time, over the, this time period to kind of demonstrate what's going on. But yeah. I don't know if you have information on this, but any idea when the books can be available? This year. <laughs> <laughs> Is the answer the same for the movie? Yeah. So okay. both book and movie are planning on being out in uh, the latter part of 2022, um, which is the hope and dream plan. But it's a very intense uh, research-oriented book, so you can imagine all the work going into it. That's our hope. In the meantime, Kathy's website has a lot of information. I would recommend people to go there. Uh, your website definitely has a lot of information and access to resources. There's enough to keep people busy until the book and movie come out. Cool. Ed, thanks for being here. Sure. Appreciate you and your story you. and your expertise. Thank you for all the details and just bring, I think people are going to have a ton of fun and it's going to be super helpful for them to hear a lot of the information you shared. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. And that concludes part two of my interview series with Ed Oxford. So thankful for Ed and the work he's doing and the person that he is in this conversation. If you're a queer person and you are a follower of Jesus and you're a spirit-filled believer and you don't have a ton of people like you around, because I know that's a lot of us, then I want you to know that we prepared a space specifically for you called the Rainbow Room. And there are a couple different aspects of getting involved and I provided a link below this episode for you to check that out. If you're looking to reconcile your sexuality and your faith, the Rainbow Room will be exactly what you're looking for. 
If you're looking to be an ally to the queer community, or you already are one and you just want to grow in, in that, we have an allies group specifically for people who are looking to step in and protect and stand in solidarity with our queer brothers and sisters. If that's something you're interested in, you can check out that with the link below. And then if you want to do some of your own research and studying on this without anybody else's involvement, um, you can check out Numa Plus. I have a series on there called Rainbow Road, and it's specifically just going through the theology behind how does the Bible not condemn gay people in any way. Um, so those links are provided below. I hope you guys enjoy that. Thanks for being here and looking forward to seeing you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.